You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. So last week we looked at John 18 and 19 and the death of Jesus. Tonight we get the joy of reading about his resurrection and some of what followed. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In this chapter, and really from all of the New Testament scriptures, we understand that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I know that sounds like a broad oversimplification of things, okay? But honestly, without the resurrection, we would have no faith. We would have no hope. We'd have no Savior. So tonight, we're going to look at three specific things that we can see in John chapter 20 that the resurrection of Jesus does. both what it did for his earliest followers and what it does for us. The first of those things I want us to see is that the resurrection provides clarity in confusion. 
So the resurrection of Jesus provides clarity in confusion. There's a lot of confusion here in the first part of the chapter. Mary Magdalene, she shows up to the tomb. She doesn't know where the body is. So she runs to Peter and John, and they're kind of going off too. So then they try to run to the tomb and figure out what's going on. Okay, and then John, the beloved disciple, when he steps in, he sees the, the linen cloth, something clicks in his head. But then he admits that at the time, they didn't really fully understand that the Old, Old Testament scriptures pointed to this. So they were still a little bit confused. And Mary doesn't know what to do at that point. She doesn't even recognize Jesus at first when he says something to her. And then as the chapter, chapter progresses, you see pieces of the puzzle start to come together for them, where Jesus provides clarity. The resurrected Jesus provides clarity for them where there was confusion. Okay, so with John, you see this seeing the linen cloths in the tomb, that something clicked that had not before. Something made sense that had not made sense before where John had some confusion. He may not even have known that he was confused or that he didn't quite understand things. Well, now something makes sense that did not make sense before. It may have been that he, it clicked what Jesus had been saying all along, that this had to happen. It clicked all along maybe that Jesus had to die and then raise again. Maybe it clicked that Jesus really was God. It could have been at this moment that he fully believed now, on this side of things, everything that Jesus had said about himself. Something made more sense. But one thing that's clear from John's testimony is that not everything made sense. And yet, after the initial shock, post-resurrection, post these events, the disciples and the new believers were able to understand more fully the Old Testament scriptures and how the Old Testament was pointing ahead to the resurrection. Now, the resurrection made sense of everything that God had intended to do all along. And so they may not have understood in this moment, but over time, after the resurrection, they got clarity about some things they were confused about from the scriptures before. They see that the resurrection is the fulfillment of all that scripture's been pointing to, that Jesus is the one who would have his heel bruised in Genesis 3, but would crush the head, crush the head of the serpent, that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed, that they were able to see then that Jesus is the king in the line of David who's going to reign forever. And that Jesus is the Messiah, the suffering servant, and the ultimate priest king who's going to save the people from their ultimate enemy, death. So death looked like the end, but resurrection revealed it was all part of God's ultimate plan. And so there's clarity now in the midst of confusion. And coming back to Mary, you know, we see that she doesn't quite understand who she's looking for until Jesus says her name. Notice this question. It comes from the angels, and then it comes from Jesus. It says, whom are you seeking? Or this question of why are you weeping? And then Jesus is saying, whom are you seeking? What he's saying is, do you understand who you've been following? Do you understand who you've been following? It's almost like he's, he's posing to Mary the question of, what kind of Lord do you think I am? Because she's just said to who she thought was the gardener, hey, tell me where you've laid my Lord that I may come and take him away. He's like, do you understand what kind of Lord you're following? So he asked her this question because she doesn't, she doesn't grasp really the magnitude of who Jesus is, the magnitude of the plan that was there all along. And then when Jesus says her name, her eyes are open. And she gets it. There's clarity where there once was confusion. And it's reminiscent actually of John 10. Earlier in the book of John, Jesus is talking about being a good shepherd. Okay, and he says this in John 10, 3 and 4. He says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. When he calls her name, boom, clarity. Clarity where there was confusion. And you got to ask yourself this, like, do you understand who it is that you're following? Do you understand what kind of Lord this is? We talked about this some last week, about how the people that surrounded the events of Jesus' crucifixion didn't quite understand who they were dealing with. They didn't understand the magnitude of the moment. They didn't believe in who Jesus was. And I think sometimes we can fail to understand who he is too, that we sell him short of all that he really is and all that he really has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. So I ask that question, do you understand who Jesus is, what kind of Lord he is? And the amazing thing about the resurrection is it leaves no doubt about who Jesus is. It leaves no doubt about what our whole existence is about. You know, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot that may confuse us in life. You know, we may have confusion around our own circumstances. The circumstances in our own lives might confuse us. Why is this happening? Why we gotta allow this kind of questions and probably things in our world that happen that you don't quite understand. How could God allow that? How could he possibly work through that? Why are these things happening? Why are people so ridiculous and crazy? And why do we all hate each other so much? You know, maybe you have questions about certain things in scriptures, in the scriptures that confuse you. You don't quite know how to take some of the things that are in there. And maybe you have disagreements with some other believers who maybe take some things differently than you take them. You understand one thing this way, you understand, they understand it a different way, and there's some disagreement there. You know, and there's also some things that our culture says that seem to make a lot of sense to us. Just in our human logical mind, having grown up in the culture that we're around, some of the things the culture says make sense to us, and yet they don't line up with Scripture. And so there's a sense of confusion about why it seems to make so much sense, but why it doesn't line up with Scripture. And, and I think there's probably a general confusion about what our lives should look like and where we're headed. Seniors, that may be where you're at. A general confusion about what's ahead. But in the midst of this confusion, there is one central thing that provides clarity. One central thing that provides clarity in the midst of the confusion. If Jesus has been raised and he has accomplished everything that the Father sent him to do, then these things are true. Your salvation can be absolutely secure. You can absolutely know where you stand with God. That can be clear in the midst of confusion. You can also trust him to be at work in your life, to do his will, no matter what the world says or does, or no matter what it is that you experience or what's going on around you. You can also center your life around living for him and living according to the scriptures to the best of your understanding because he is God and he is Lord. And his his life is our life, both now and forever. And then even when we disagree with other believers on things, and we will, some of you will disagree with each other on some things, but we still have one central thing that unites all of us, that is the gospel, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We can all proclaim that together. There's clarity in the midst of confusion, but it also does this for us. The resurrection brings peace into fear. In this chapter, you know, Mary was fearful that they had taken Jesus' body away until she saw Jesus. The resurrection removed fear, quite literally, for her. Jesus shows up in a room with locked doors twice. Probably startled the believers, startled those disciples 
they, they had the doors locked for a reason. And so when somebody just shows up in the room with them, of course, they're a little thrown off. So both times, Jesus says, peace be with you. He brings peace with him into confusion and into these startled moments. Two, more, two times besides this first one, the first one we see is in uh, verse 19. Two other times he's going to say this, that peace be with you. Because, I mean, he's showing up in this locked room. Here's the thing. It was locked for the fear of the Jews. That's what the scriptures tell us. They had the room locked for fear of the Jews. What's happening is they're fearful for their own lives. Jesus has already warned them, if they do things to me and they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. So they're like, mm, we're locking the door. We're going to hang out together and we're going to lock this door and it's all going to be, all, all going to be good. They're fearing for their own lives. And so I think, and this, this may be a stretch. Some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. We can talk about it later. But I think implicit under all fears is the fear of death. Like behind all fears is the fear of death. So any fear that you might have, a fear of missing out, a fear of failure, fear of not measuring up or not being enough, fear of not being loved, fear of the unknown, I think behind all these things is a fear of death. And the reason I think that is because I think it, any fear helps us remember that we are finite, that we are not fully in control, that we don't know the future, and we can't make sure that we get the preferred future that we want. And we, we realize these things. We realize that we're not in control, and it fills us with dread and with worry with unease, it can even be paralyzing at times. So the good news of the resurrection is this. Jesus defeats death and the one who holds death over our heads. That leads to these other fears. Let me show you this again. We read this, this verse either last week or a couple weeks ago. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death itself is defeated. He has conquered death on our behalf. And not only that, but he's conquered the enemy that we have, the devil. This devil lied in the beginning. The first time we see him in Scripture, he's lying to people. Adam and Eve, he lied in the beginning. He said that they wouldn't die, but they did. They died a spiritual death, and they died a physical death. He lied to them. He's been lying to us ever since, and he's been holding death. What he accomplished through that lie and their sin, he's, hold, he's been holding death over our heads ever since, making us fear all these other things. But listen, that is no longer true for us if we are in Christ. He can hold nothing over us because he's been defeated. We look what the resurrection of Jesus means for us from 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so if you didn't know, 1 Corinthians 15, great place to go to read about resurrection. Okay, it's the, it's the longest uh, thing in the New Testament where it talks about resurrection. But we're just gonna read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. We're gonna go 20 through 22 and then uh, part of 54 and 55. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is not the end for us who are in Christ. I do not have to fear death anymore. It's been defeated. Its sting has been removed. And so peace streams into a place once held by fear. I used to be under the power of death and the power and the fear of death, but now that has been removed from me, and instead I have peace in Christ. When I lose the fear of death, these other fears begin to lose their grip as well. You know, it's kind of like Hebrews 2.15 is getting at this idea that we're freed from what would have been lifelong slavery to fear of death and thereby all these other fears. Freed from what would have been lifelong slavery. When my faith is in a living God who has shown me great grace to save me from my sin, I do not have to worry so much because I may die, but it's not the end. I may not be in control, but he is. And he's good and he loves me. And I may not know what the future holds, but I have an ongoing relationship with the person who is controlling and guiding the future. The one who is leading me into it. So I'm removed from this sense of power, the fear that it once held over me. We look here at the case of Thomas. Okay, Thomas, he gets this name Doubting Thomas. I don't know that necessarily doubt was his main issue. I think he was fearful. I do, and I think that's where his doubt stemmed from. If we were to go back to John chapter 11, back there is where Jesus healed Lazarus or brought Lazarus out of the grave. Okay, Lazarus lived in the place called Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. They had just been in Jerusalem, and some people wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to capture Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And so the disciples aren't really excited about going back toward Jerusalem. But Jesus says he's going to go. He's going to see Lazarus who has died. And Thomas's response is, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 16 of John chapter 11. Let us also go that we may die with him. I think he was fearful. I think that's what's going on with Thomas, is that there's fear down in there that's causing him to doubt. You know, and he wasn't there when the other disciples got to see Jesus. When Jesus first showed up in the room, he is not there. And so he's got to listen to their testimony about what what happened, but he refuses to believe. And he says, I'm not going to believe unless I see these things, unless I touch the wounds. And Jesus grants Thomas the opportunity to have those fears upended. He gives him that opportunity. Thomas does believe, and he would go on to be an apostle, spreading the gospel of Jesus, uh, you know, as part of the early church. But I love this detail from, from the, sort of this little episode here with Thomas. Eight days later, Jesus let Thomas wait eight days. Thomas hears from the disciples, oh, we saw Jesus. It was amazing. We were glad. Of course they were. But Thomas wasn't there, and so he's got to hear this from them, and and Jesus doesn't show up back immediately, and he's like, okay, let me make sure Thomas is good to go. No, he lets, him, he lets him sit with this for a few days. And that's hard. Sometimes our doubts and fears linger. And as far as it seems to us, God isn't rushing in with his overwhelming presence to make sure that we're all good. Sometimes we're left sitting with it. You know, and I wonder where Thomas's head was at in the moment, in this in-between time, but I know where mine has been before. I don't know how how Thomas felt, but I know how I have felt. 
before in those moments of doubt or in those moments of worry where it doesn't seem like the peace of God is just rushing in for me. I think one effect of lingering doubts and fears, one of those things that, one of the effects that it's had on me is that it's forced me to trust what I've heard for the peace I need. It's forced me to trust what I've heard, the truth that I've heard for the peace that I need, and not necessarily having the opportunity like Thomas did to see Jesus and touch him. Notice after this interaction with Thomas, Jesus says, hey, now you've believed because you've seen me. But he says, blessed are those who have believed though they have not seen. And knowing that just like Thomas, there's gonna be plenty who struggle to believe without seeing, I think Jesus wants to pronounce for us, there's gonna be a lot of you who don't get a chance to see everything that you wanna see. But blessed are you if you believe based on what you've heard, not what you've seen. And I know it's going to be difficult for a lot of us, but it's possible to maintain belief even when you don't see and when you don't feel what you want to feel. And Jesus says we are blessed when we do. The testimony of these eyewitnesses has been enough for me. You know, I I have believed, and sometimes it's been hard to, but I know that I can bring my cares to the Lord because he loves me and I trust him. You know what God does when, when we bring our cares to the Lord? He restores us. We may not feel it when we want to feel it, but at some point in time, we'll know it, that God is doing a work in us and that he will restore and establish us. I know this from scripture, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. I want to read it to you. It should be on the screens as well. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, de- to devour. Resist him because you can. I know that's not what the scripture says. But resist him because you can, because he's been defeated by Jesus in his resurrection. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to know it's okay if it's difficult. It's okay if it's difficult right now. You don't feel peace right now because a resurrected Lord is in control. The resurrection changes everything. He knows what he's doing, just like he knew what he was doing in letting Thomas wait. I want to notice something. It's also not just Jesus that we have this relationship with and lean on. And I know it sounds funny to say that, but it's, it's, it's not just the Son of God that we rely on and that we lean on. It's the sovereign creator God, the Trinity, in all his fullness that we have a relationship, a real relationship with. And I know it's hard to get our heads wrapped around the Trinity. But here's the thing. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have the Son right here with his disciples saying, peace. You know, and he is there physically with them. We don't get that experience. We don't get that experience but we do have a relationship with God in his fullness. Jesus told Mary Magdalene in John 20, 17, he said, go tell the disciples, I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God, my father and your father, my God and your God. The relationship that Jesus has with the father is extended to us. The relationship that Jesus had with his father God is extended to us. 
that we have the same benefit of this relationship. You know, we talked from John 17 about Jesus praying that the world would be able to see who Jesus is and how, uh, how the Father loves us just as he loves the Son. He said, by your unity, I want the world to be able to see that the Father loves you just the same way that he loves the Son. And here we see the reconciliation between us and God that's been accomplished by Jesus on the cross. When he said it's finished, he meant it is being finished. All of it is as good as done, and the relationship is restored. And it's done. It's a done deal now. He is raised from the dead, and he's saying, I am going to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So God is our Father and our God through what Jesus has accomplished. So the kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father is the kind of relationship that we have with the Father, that he invites us into, so that like Christ, we can know where we stand with him, so we can know what our eternal destiny is. We can be, uh, we can be able to face what is ahead, you know, the unknown future with this unity of will with the Father like Jesus had. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Yeah, in the Garden of Gethsemane, yes, he knew what was what was coming. And it didn't feel like peace to him, I don't think. You know, when we read in the other Gospels, we read about the sweat, sweating drops of blood and the anguish that he had and praying over and over again, you know, not my will, but your will be done. But that was only after saying, let this cup pass from me. And we know that he was in anguish. He didn't always, he didn't even always feel peace. But I want us to understand Peace isn't just a feeling. Peace is confidence in God. Peace is not just a feeling. You can have a feeling of peace, yes. But feelings come and go. And I would say that peace really is confidence in God. A confidence that Jesus displayed in saying, I am committed to the Father's will. I'm confident that he can raise me from the dead, so I'm going right into it. And he did. And he faced death for the joy that was on the other side. And we too can walk through anything with that same confidence in our God, our Father. And this is what the resurrection has accomplished for us. And we have that peace being ever produced in us through the Spirit. So this Holy Spirit that's come to live within us, this is the promise of Jesus. John 14 through 16, we had that week where we talked about the Holy Spirit. Now he promised that the Holy Spirit was coming. And part of that promise was in verse 27 of chapter 14, He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This peace was tied to the Holy Spirit coming. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, which is the promise for us who put our faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes to live with us, he produces that in us, that confidence in God. I also want to mention that it's it's. Jesus said, peace be with you, doesn't mean that their fears were automatically suddenly removed. You can have confidence in God and still experience fear. Okay, just because you feel fear or you, fear, you feel a sense of doubt about things does not mean that you're not confident in God or that you don't have faith or you, don't, you can't have peace because you still have fear. I didn't say peace replaced fear. It was strategic to say that peace came into fear. So it's interesting when he says, peace be with you, you know, he shows up in the room with him with a locked door and he says, peace be with you. A week later, when Thomas is with him again, they still have a locked door. It wasn't that they didn't have any more fears. 
You know, so I don't think peace is the absence of all fear. I think it's Jesus is bringing peace into the fear. And later it will be the Spirit that makes these same people really bold. We see the Holy Spirit come later at Pentecost, and he makes these same people really, really bold to share the gospel. And I don't think that ever came without any sense of fear. At least it's not been my experience. But because Jesus has conquered death and reconciled us to the Father and sent us his Spirit, we too can have the peace of God where there would only otherwise be fear. The resurrection does a third thing to us. It, it turns complacency into mission. When Mary Magdalene becomes aware of the, that the person in front of her is Jesus, when he says her name, she clings to him. I was reading this commentary even that said it, it might have been that she fell at his feet and was clinging to his feet. She's hanging on to him, and Jesus says something that's, that may seem somewhat confusing to us. He says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is verse 17. And then instead he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm sending you to my father and your father, to my God, your God. What he's saying is now is not the time to try to cling to this resurrected body of mine. Now is the time to proclaim the resurrection to others. And then I think there's something in there for us. I think we can get stuck in this place of just trying to work on our relationship with Jesus. Okay, working on just where we are and we're trying really hard to get our quiet time right and try to experience some sense of like great, just like closeness with the Lord, trying to work on ourselves so that we don't have any uh, sin in our lives. And it becomes this very individualistic thing, or it can. And I think for us, this may be a, a potential struggle that we don't even see, that it becomes more about us. And I'm not trying to read too hard in this and, and say that Mary's motives here are this, that it's very individualistic and selfish of her. I don't necessarily think that's what she's doing. I think she's just excited that this is Jesus and he's clinging to her. And I don't think Jesus is mad at her. Like, no, don't cling to me. No, I think what he's saying is, hey, now's not the time. What I want you to do is go spread the good news. Go tell my disciples that I'm risen. Tell them that you saw me. Tell them these things. And here's the thing. I'm also not bashing just sitting with Jesus in the word and clinging to him. I think that is absolutely necessary for us in our walk with the Lord, to have time alone with the Lord. So I'm not bashing that. I actually feel like I need more of that in my own life. But we also need to understand that a real love for Jesus always turns us into the hands and feet of Jesus and always makes us a witness for Jesus. So if your goal is to fall more and more in love with Jesus personally, don't let it surprise you to find that it's going to lead you to loving other people more in word and deed. It's always going to turn us into those on mission. So Mary is given this task. She has the joy of carrying it out. She gets to share with the disciples that Jesus is alive. She's seen the risen Lord, and it's an amazing opportunity for her who has been given this task. But then we also skip down and see Jesus is sending out others. Verses 21 through 23, this is what he says to his disciples. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's some confusing stuff in those verses. I'm not going to answer all your hard questions, but I will say a few things. Jesus, at the end of verse 21, is fulfilling what he said in 17, 18, where he prayed to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he's praying to the Father about it. Now he's enacting it, saying, now I send you into the world. 
So these disciples are to take up Jesus' ministry, to carry on what he has already begun. Not without Jesus, but with Jesus. They're now fulfilling his ministry. He is going to work through them as his disciples, as his witness. He's going to carry out this mission. And how is, how is he going to do that? The Holy Spirit. He's going to work through his Holy Spirit and his believers now. And that's why he mentions this in verse 22. Verse 22, he's talking about breathing out, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And then maybe give us a little bit of a pause here because this is Easter. He's saying this on the day he rose. And we know from Acts that the Holy Spirit actually came at Pentecost, which is like 50 days later. And so we're looking at this and going, wait a second, what's going on? I think the best way to understand what's going on here is that Jesus is trying to call their attention back to something he said. I think he's trying to say, hey, remember in John 14 through 16? You know, they didn't have the, the chapters and all that stuff back then. But he's saying, remember before my crucifixion when I told you the Holy Spirit was going to come? He's saying, now that I have been raised, that Holy Spirit's coming. I think he's trying to point them back to remember what, they, what he had said before, but also pointing ahead to them, connecting the dots for them, that now that he's been raised, these things that he's talked about are going to be accomplished. So he's looking, he's saying, look, receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Spirit, they will be empowered to be his witnesses. We read that in Acts 1, uh, verse 8, where Jesus tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's symbolically, I believe, breathing out right here and making this statement to them because the Spirit is coming and will enable them to be his faithful witnesses. It's kind of a, a little bit of a play on words because the word for spirit is pneuma, which can also mean wind or breath. So he's breathing out. He's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean they had the Holy Spirit right then in the same way that they were going to at Pentecost. But he's symbolically saying, the Holy Spirit's coming, and then you're going to be my witnesses. And then in verse 23, this is, could be really confusing. I don't think that verse 23 means that we, or that his disciples or us, get to be the judges of who gets forgiven. I don't think we get to, we get to stand and uh, people come by and we get to decide, oh, they're going to be saved or they're not going to be saved. They're going to be forgiven of their sins. They're not going to be forgiven of their sins. I don't think that makes any sense with the Bible. So what it likely means is that the message of forgiveness goes with you. The opportunity to be forgiven comes to the message that you're going to share. And I think what he's saying is not that you have the power to withhold it from people, but more or less, if you don't share it, it won't happen. I want to share this message through you. And so when you share this message, I think, I think it's like he's saying, as you share this message of what has happened in this gospel truth that I have that I've come and who I am and that I've died and I've resurrected. When you share this message, some are going to hear and they're going to be forgiven. And you carry that message with you. Others may hear and refuse it. And from them, forgiveness will be withheld. And here's where this comes home to us. Just like John's readers, we are on the other side of Pentecost. John, when he writes this, he's on the other side of things. It's years and years and years after. And lots of believers have come through and they've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. So we're on the other side of these things. We have received the Holy Spirit if we have put our faith in Christ. So having received this Spirit and the forgiveness that comes through Christ, we are now his witnesses, sent just like the disciples were sent to share who Christ is and what he's done with the world around us. That is now for us to do. And he's planning to do it with us and through us. And this message that we hold, that we have, bears a lot of weight. 
Forgiveness of sins is on the line here. Eternal destinies are on the line here. We dare not hold back the message. We dare not withhold it from anyone, but to share it with everyone and let God decide how it's going to play out from there. This is what the resurrection does for us. If Jesus is alive, then we have the greatest news to share and the greatest power at work within us. So let's not be complacent, but on mission instead. You know, I love what John writes at the end of this chapter. The very end, verses 30 and 31. We haven't talked about those at all. He's just finished recording that Jesus had said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And now he's saying, I have written these things to you so that you may believe. So there's an audience of people who did not get a chance to see Jesus in the flesh, but he's writing to them and saying, I wrote these things so that you might believe too, that you might be the ones that Jesus spoke of, that they might believe without having seen. And he's probably talking about, you know, when he's talking about all these things that he's, he's written about, it's not just the previous couple chapters. I think it's all the things he's recorded so far in his gospel. But he's saying the point of his writing is that the people who read it ought to believe in Jesus even though they don't have the privilege of seeing his resurrected body. Because if they believe in Jesus, they'll have life in his name. That's how he ends this chapter. And by believing, you may have life in Jesus' name. And that's the whole point of me standing up here as well. That's the point of his writing. That's the point of me saying any of these things. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that he came, that we may have abundant life. In John chapter 11, when he he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he was put to death and then brought back to life so that he might actually be all those things for us. That he might actually be able to offer us abundant life and be the life within us. So believe in him that you may have life. This could be your Thomas moment. 